This is Chef Sarah Minnick from Lovely's 5050 in Portland, Oregon, and you're listening to Ingredient Insiders. This is Ingredient Insiders. I'm John Magazzino. And I'm Andrea Parkins. On each episode of Ingredient Insiders, we'll be talking with famous chefs and authors about their favorite ingredient. And then we speak to the producers of those ingredients to talk about their history, how they're made, and why chefs love using them in their kitchens. hi Andrea, Portlandia, Portland, Oregon. I love Portland, John. Do you love it? I do love it. What do you love about Portland? I just, I love, honestly, the city is surrounded by these enormous trees, and I just think it's so beautiful. I love the bookstore. I love the food. I love the people. I love Portland. Yeah, it's a very entrepreneurial city. Yeah. Like everybody, especially the restaurateurs, it's almost like they just kind of like, they didn't want banker investments. They don't have the big backing of restaurant groups like they do in a lot of the big cities of the US. It's a very much like, I'm going to do it on my own city. And that, you know, that spirit is all very much alive and well. And, you know, it's a weird city, but it's a great city. Yeah. I mean, I was super excited um, something that John, you know, we love to do is pizza crawls. Yeah. So when we decided we were going to go to Portland, I knew we had to do a pizza crawl. It's a great pizza city. It really is. Where do I, you rank Portland in the like pizza hierarchy of the United States? Like, do you want to give it a shot at, at saying who's number one and who's not? And I mean, listen, I'm a new, uh, you know, I live in New York. You know, I have a, a special place in my heart for for Ratza in Jersey City as my number one pizza, but. I think Portland is a close second for amazing pizza cities. I am not going to argue with that. Yeah. New York, yeah, hands and it has down nothing for to me. do with whether I grew up here or not. New York is the pizza capital of the world. Yeah. Of the world. Not, there's Italy, you know, Naples is great, but New York is number one by far. And then when you start to look at other cities, there's great pizza in Los Angeles. You know, our friend Nancy Silverton yeah, Mozza, does, does great, great stuff. Job. And there's some other spots there that are wonderful. And, and you Chicago's love your Connecticut. Chicago's got their deep dish. And New Haven, Connecticut is absolutely, you know, per capita, per square mile, packed with amazing pizza places that I love. You know, Zupardi's and Modern Sally's. and Sally's and Pepe's. I mean, uh-huh. a lot of great stuff in a small area. But then you go to Portland, Oregon. And we can start reeling off, and let's do that. I yeah. mean, there's Shoals uh, Pizza. Demos. Uh, Demos, amazing. Ranch. Ranch was so good. A sleeper that we didn't even know about yeah. going into this that was great. And so it goes on and on. There's a, and we're not naming all of them, but I feel like there's 10 amazing pizza places in Portland. And it's not a huge city. And they're all really unique and they're really great. And the one we're talking about today and the chef we're talking about today, Sarah Minnick of Lovely's 5050, she's been getting accolades, you know, like no one else. I mean, amazing. Yeah. And her pizza is something very different than kind of anything we just talked about. You know, if you think about Connecticut, if you think about, you know, Detroit style pizza, her pizza is her pizza. What, do you, what is it? What makes her pizza, do you think? Not only is it beautifully done and presented, like almost like a painting or, or or art, but she is allowing the Portland farmers market to drive her menu every day, and I think that is so incredibly unique and important to her and her restaurant. Yeah, I mean, I think if Alice Waters were to open a pizza place, yes. it would look a lot like what Sarah Menick's doing. It is farmers That's a great market analogy, John. It's farmers market pizza. It's farm to table. The toppings there. You're not going to Lovely's 5050 in Portland, Oregon to have, you know, a slice of pepperoni pizza. 
but you are going there and you're going to experience whatever Sarah found at the farmer's market that morning, she's bringing crates of it back to the restaurant and putting it on the pizza. And these unique and amazing, really delicious combinations. Yeah, like Swiss chard, grilled peaches, corn, all different types of flowers and greens and herbs that she, you know, she also has a garden that she's, you know, producing and bringing, you know, to the restaurant. So, I mean, you don't think, you know, about putting peaches on a pizza, but it works and it works really well. Yeah, I, I, I had the chance to go there last night and I was blown away. Without me. Just, yeah, well, we'll go tonight. I know, if we're you going want. tonight. So I, yeah, I was there with Lynn Giacometti from Point Reyes Blue Cheese and Justin Lawson, one of our amazing sales managers. Yep, from Los Angeles. Love you, Justin. And so we had, you know, it was great. The, the menu's simple. Like the, they're printing that every day based upon what is found at the farmer's market. So yesterday, there were five salads, all of them absolutely delicious and beautiful. To you your love point, a salad. they look artistic. I love my salad lover. Uh, no secret there. And then, you know, I think there was about five or six pizzas and these really wonderful combinations, things you will not see anywhere else in the world that just are, again, those different types of vegetables and f- possibly fruits or flowers, to your point. Um, you know, the one that really blew me away yesterday was a pizza that was topped with cherry tomato confit, shaved zucchini, orange agramato extra, you know, an infused so olive oil with, with an orange flavor, and Sleeping Beauty cheese from Cascadia Creamery. Which is the ingredient that we're going to be talking about today. Yes, yeah, Sarah wants to talk about this amazing small artisan cheese maker that's just outside of Portland. Uh, Cascadia Creamery, and this cheese that they age in volcanic caves. It's so cool. When you think of cheese on a pizza, John, I mean, obviously mozzarella is yeah, what comes course. to everybody's mind. Of course. So the fact that even not only are the toppings that she's putting on pizza very unique, she's also, you know, she doesn't use a lot of sauce, if any at all, tomato sauce, and she's putting cheeses like Sleeping Beauty on her pizza. Yeah, and I don't remember a lot of like, again, this is not that slice that's no. like, you know, dripping with amazing, delicious Melted mozzarella. It's you know, it's, it's got Sarah's there's pizza. cheese on there, but it is yeah. it's a vegetable experience. You know, that's at least last night. And the place when I say you know it's getting accolades, um, Netflix just came out with a Chef's Table series just on pizza, and it's got five of the greatest pizza makers in the world. And Sarah's on there, you know, with yeah. them. So that was my entertainment on the the flight out. It's great. I mean, so I, I good. Love if the you series. haven't watched it, watch Chef's Table Pizza. It's amazing. So this is going to be a great episode. I'm so psyched to sit down with her in a few minutes and look forward to talking to her. Yeah, and we'll, you know, can't wait to talk to John Schumann from Cascadia Creamery as well, all about Sleeping Beauty cheese. This episode is in partnership with The Chef's Warehouse and produced by Gotham Production Studios. All right, here we are in Portland, Oregon, and could not be happier or more honored because we have Sarah Minnick in the house here at Provista Specialty Foods. If you have a television and you have Netflix, stop whatever you're doing right now and watch the pizza episode. They have a chef's table series on pizza and Sarah's episode is incredible. What was that experience like, you know, recording and I guess them like approaching you, you know, to do the to do the show? Yeah, the first time that uh, Brian McGinn, who is the producer of the show, came to Lovelies and he made a post and like photographed a pizza and posted and was like, oh, outstanding pizza. 
And then I, I saw it on Instagram and I was like, oh, wait a minute, a chef's table. <laughs> like, I, oh, oh my God, maybe they're doing a pizza season. That would be so amazing, you know, just because I think that'd be a season I'd want to watch even if I wasn't on it. But, um, and so I, it kind of had like a feeling, I was like, maybe they are and they're scouting. Um, but it took a while for them to actually get a hold of me. And I think he sent me an Instagram message and was like, hey, what's your email? And I was like, okay, this is a hopefully, you know, hopefully we're going to do a season just because I'd always really liked the show. And I thought like, I would, I'm not really into doing too much TV or anything like that, but I thought that would be like the one thing that I would do. Nice. Just because they seem to show like some realistic It's parts so beautiful of, how yeah. they do it. It's like art watching, you know, any of those episodes. Yeah, it's so. like a little film, yes. you know. Now before that, and so the chef's table was amazing. I have to confess, I had never heard of Lovely's 50-50 until about a year and a half, maybe two years ago, when Nathan Mervold, uh, there was a story because he was releasing the, his pizza books, and he said, Portland, Oregon, incredible pizza city, and named Lovely's 50-50 in there as one of the best pizza places in America. And I immediately called, because Andrew and I are pizza crazy, like we've traveled around the world eating pizza. And I was like, I, how do I not know this place? I have to go. And so because of the pandemic, we hadn't been traveling, but we've made it a point to ace. It's been on our list. <laughs> we, we, we were seeking you out for quite a bit. And uh, so like I said, it's really an honor to have you here. And today we're going to be talking specifically, I love asking the chefs what they want to talk about. I like the anticipation of that email back, like, what are they going to say? You want to talk about Cascadia Creamery, a particular cheese, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was. Uh, it's Cascadia Creamery Sleeping Beauty, and it's an aged um, cow's milk cheese, and we use it on almost all of our pizzas. Amazing. It's organic, and it's from Trout Lake, Washington. How did you find them? Hmm. Or did they find you? I think um, we've used a variety of different like cheeses that I try to use domestic cheeses on our pizzas, and but because we also use a lot of Italian cheeses too. But I was looking for one that was similar to maybe like a Fontina, and so we were having like sourcing problems and different problems with a cheese that was a really good melter. And of course, we were trying to be like economical, like okay, well, our price points this, our price points this, but I do know that it takes a lot to make you know, or especially organic cheese. Mm -hmm. But this, this one was like a little pricier than we wanted. But finally, I was like, you know, I think it's worth it. Let's just like, go for it, make the investment and like, go all in on using it on. I mean, I, I think we're pretty, we're a small place. But right now, we're maybe using like 100 pounds a week of it. Wow. That's <laughs> um, and that's, you know, it does, it's going on the majority of our pizzas, because basically, it's a really great melter. And then it comes in and like complements the vegetables without being too assertive on its own flavor. And so it's one of those cheeses that we can just like pile on there. And because it's not too funky, it's not too sharp, you know, it's got like the best profile for all the things that we're looking for. The thing I loved about, and I had pizza at your restaurant last night, it's hyper, the, the sourcing of the ingredients is obviously very local. Um, you're very farmer's market oriented. Um, this cheese that we're talking about is from not too far away, obviously an hour drive, not whatever it is. Mm -hmm. How does the farmer's market play into Lovely's 50-50 and the, what you're doing? I, I think, you know, farmer's market is something I've gone to once or twice or three times a week for the past like 10 plus years. And it's really just a good measure of like what's coming. And it's also, when we get things delivered, we get them delivered from bigger farms in the area. And, 
you know, not not even necessarily that big, but basically the farmer's market will have a collection of people and farmers who are doing kind of a smaller scale thing. And they don't deliver to restaurants because restaurants place the huge orders. And, and also like usually the produce I think is a little discounted for restaurants, but they need the extra sort of, I guess, retail price. And so you cannot get that stuff delivered. So if you want to see the stuff that's like the newest, the freshest, um, the most innovative, you do have to go to the market to kind of check it out and see what they have. So it's more like, uh, are you finding like inspiration when you're walking through the market to say, okay, I think I want, you know, this is obviously what's beautiful, what's ready. I want to run a pizza with those ingredients. Yeah. I mean, when Lovely's in the beginning stages and even just like five or six years ago, pre-COVID, it was much smaller. Our volume was was lower. Um, so I could go and just get little baggies of things. I remember this, you know, and it was like we just have specials, like especially on Saturday because that's when the big main market downtown is. Then I could just go and get like little, I mean, like little bags of radish flowers. And it would be like, oh, I'm going to make like 15 of those radish flowers pizzas tonight. And then um, – you know, those days are not, I, I don't know, they're they are on hold for now <laughs> because um, then during COVID, we closed, you know, on when, like everybody did. But that same week, my sister and I just opened up for to-go because we had so much produce and stuff and I had dough and everything. So I was like, let's just do it. And it was a crazy hit. You know, people just called in and placed an order and we sold out like this. So we still just did that three days a week, all COVID. And we had a couple employees, but, um, you know, all of our other employees, we had to let go. So... Um, we started to sell like 150 pizzas each night. And so, I mean, we, we just realized that we could do that. And it kind of coincided at the same time with us getting rid of our wood oven, which was very limiting as far as how many we could make. It was a beautiful way to cook, but also not environmentally friendly. So we changed to Pizza Master and we can cook the wood oven. We cooked four pizzas and now we can cook nine. So we doubled our, you know, your we volume, our yeah. volume. And then also I just got faster because that's all I was doing, you know, so I kind of developed these methods to make everything a little bit faster. Um, and then we were selling, you know, if you have six pizzas, we were selling like, you know, 25 of each basically. So the volume of like went from like, oh, 15 of these little pizzas to 25. And then more popular, we would sell like 50 of one if we had seasonal. So this is a, this is actually a positive aspect of COVID. I like to hear anything positive that came out of there. You really learned to scale the business. You got that beautiful gas deck oven in there. Um, your volume went through the roof. Um, pizza became obviously very popular during COVID because it's an easy uh, takeaway item. Are you happy now that it's so busy? Is it like, is it super well, stressful or is it a good thing? Well, when we, and then when we opened back up, we opened up seven days a week, hired back every, you know, half our staff and hired half new staff. That to-go business was still like the bigger business because people are still worried about eating out and mm -hmm. people weren't sure we were open or who knows what's going on. So, so we've kept that to-go business, not 150, hopefully. <laughs> My sister's always like, we want to do 80. I'm like, that's a lot. That's like more than half that we have for the dining room. But we still have that system and it's a system where people text in an order and we like, we send them a Venmo link and they pay that way. So it's like, that that thing has really stuck. Um, and now with the release of Chef's Table, then the whole, all of the dine-in business is back at full force. So, I mean, and that is what's more, I mean, I don't, neither ones are, I don't want to say one's more high priority, but, you know, we are a sit-down restaurant when we want to, like, provide, like, wine, and we love having beautiful salads and, you know, bigger, like, expanded menu. So, um, but, I mean, having both has made it into sort of a new animal. Let's talk a little bit about the Portland Farmer's Market. Um, 
And this you know, may be an obvious kind of question, but why should chefs be going to the farmer's market or looking for local produce? Or why, you know, we have a lot of chefs who listen to this that, you know, may not be utilizing their local farms and stuff like that. What, you know, what are the benefits of going to the farmer's market for you? I mean, it used to be for chefs to for chefs to go like we would all get there a little early. I mean, there I would say like there's like a core group of like five <laughs> and we would be like trying to get there and snatch like the first fava beans or something. And I think farms, too, have like risen up and now they have more supply. But it used to be like you'd go and if it opens at 815, 830, you get there at 815 and you'd be like whole basket of fava beans in a bag really fast. The so early no worm saw. gets, yeah. the, the early bird, bird gets the worm. And, the, and everyone would be like, we really hate you. <laughs> fava beans and all the, all the snap peas and all, you know, everything like that, all the shelling peas. Um, so I think that that used to be the case if you wanted anything like that. And especially like the first crop of something that came out, you had to get there and be a little like, you know, rude, I guess is yeah. the word. But, um, if you want to have a more diverse menu and just use like a lovelies, we just use produce from farms. That's kind of our hard rule. Um, then you have to go pick certain things up. Like this year, I was just thinking, I don't think anyone delivered any kind of melons. Like I, we went and picked up at, well, one farmer did once, but we had to go, I had to go get them every single time. So just things like that, where they feel, I think farmers are like, Hey, we can either deliver to restaurants and they expect like a discounted price, or we can take them to the market and people will pay a little more. And that helps us. Um, and so I think, so that, and also green beans, I've picked up every bag of green beans for some reason, <laughs> this is in short supply this year. Um, so I think, and you know, if you just want, I think also like they'll farmers will put out like they're the things that they're most proud of at the farmer's market because they're just like, everyone's going to see it. And, you know, and not to say that we ever get anything, you know, bad from farms, but I think if you want to see stuff that's like a little bit different than what you might get delivered, then you have to go get it, go look for it, go see, you know, um, and like, that's a day too. like Saturdays and Wednesdays right now are the big markets. Those are days that we don't get deliveries from farms. So you have to go Get so you're if you're out of something, you're like, oh, you're going to go get it. We need more squash. We need something. Then you have to go go get it. And your menu is so reflective of what you're foraging at the market or finding at the market. Um, your cha- that menu changes every day? Yeah. I mean, sometimes it might change mid-night <laughs> to everyone's dismay. <laughs> but I love that. I think like, you know, typically when you go out, you know, for pizza, and I know for me, and, you know, it's like you go to a place, you know, I want this, you, you crave it. I think there's something like exciting and unique about that experience of like, you don't know what you're going to get. And you're going to be surprised. And I think that is special in itself. Um, is that always what you set out to do? or? Yeah, I mean, in this way, if you even think of it like that, you have things that you like at restaurants, things that you might order every time. Well, this way you can look at it on like more of a yearly scope. And you'd be like, well, I love the Nettles pizza. So I can't get it every time. But every March, I can go get it for like a couple of months, you know. So I think like it, that's still there. Um, and you can, because the thing about also seasonal cooking is that that's when the ingredients are good. You know, I was just doing a show with some, an, uh, like an Oregon program, Good Day Oregon. And the host was like, oh, this cherry tomato pizza, you're going to miss it so much like in the winter. And I was like, it's true, but if you could get cherry tomatoes from like Mexico, they're just nowhere near as good. This pizza would totally suck. You could get all the stuff for it, but it would be like, a shadow of itself you know that's that's the other point is that you just those vegetables they're not good in the, on the off season is this a 12-month market yes they take like a couple painful weeks off for christmas 
I want to. I want to play a. I was like, no. Can we do something fun? And if this doesn't work, we'll edit it out. But let's do word association game, whatever that's called. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna say the month, and I want the first okay. piece of we'll produce that hops yeah. into your okay. head. So let's start with January. Oh man. Well, hopefully you'll have chicories, chicories? which are a yeah. beautiful like crop that's been sort of more celebrated in America, but usually more of a European sure. crop because um, basically they're greens. They can freeze in the field. And then when you wait for them to thaw, you can go get them and harvest them and they survive and even get sweeter and more mm-hmm. mellow when they freeze. And so- Castelfranco, things Costa like Franco, that. Yeah, you see them in Italy. Radicchios. Go there, immediately see all of them. Can we do February? Hmm, I mean, I would lump that a little bit in there. With chicory. Yeah. yeah, I mean, okay. Fe- January and February- is a challenging time. Hopefully you have farmers who maybe could give you like cardoons that were planted yeah. and they can bury them down. It's a time we rely on farms who have cold frames. Um, and hopefully you can get things like spinach and good salad greens and okay. things like that. But it's a little, you know, it's it, in, in Oregon, that is the time when it will freeze and snow a little if it's going to. And so you have to just be like, you have to have like everything full of like potatoes, radishes, right. you know, you have to be ready. Some roots. And but but sometimes in February, late February, you'll start to see nettles and other forage greens like that. And we have a forager that gets nettles and he also starts to go around and get like miner's lettuce yeah. and all these little like, you know, beautiful flowers. And we can put those on the top and chickweed. So yeah. like February is like there's hope. You're like, okay. And March. Made it through. Yeah, March is March, finally. March, spring is starting to happen. Things start going on. You start getting ramps. You start getting morels. You start more plentiful nettles, for sure, nettles. Um, and like a couple other like first crops from people, if you're lucky. April? Like then, these are like my favorite months. Popping. Yeah, yeah, because it just start everything just starts to open up and you see like, like honestly, between April and now, it's just easier you know because you're just like there's just an abundance like you almost just can't have everything good you just you know so i think yeah that's the time when things start to crack open and um yeah it's same same stuff but just more plentiful more readily available you'll still start seeing like new potatoes and um you know the markets will just start having like arugula and things that are a little bit you know they like cold weather but not freezing temps may May, June. Okay. We'll do do a double, double month. month. Yeah. I think the produce does kind of like, uh, that absolutely. works that way. Um, okay. So that will be when you start seeing, we have one farmer who likes, he's got a lot of cold frames and he's like pretty excited usually about zucchini. <laughs> so somehow like zucchini will show up and you're just like, okay, like it's that same thing where it's, you want to jump from spring to summer, but you want to be careful about it. Um, but let's see. You'll start seeing Zucchini's a lot more Zucchini's having herbs. a moment, it by is. the way, in the is world it? right now. Oh. oh yeah, absolutely. Stanley Tucci made... I think. Oh, I did agree. you watch the CNN? Um, his his show. I don't. I don't know. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. But he searching he goes, for Italy. Yeah, yeah. Through, like yeah. That. And he goes to this restaurant and they make this in in on the Amalfi yeah, Coast. Yeah, zucchini pasta. Oh yeah, and spaghetti it's like, al Morano. Yeah. Wait, but it's pasta with zucchini. Yeah, and it's, it's not pasta made out of zucchini. No, no it's, yeah, it's no, pasta. They're like, no. <laughs> it almost like melts. Like the zucchini yeah. becomes like a I sauce. Too. Oh, yeah. So there's a really good David Tannis recipe that the New York Times. It's like ricotta and summer squash. It's yeah. so good with basil. I love that. But I so, love zucchini on zucchini's pizza. Zucchini's having a I moment. I love zucchini. It's so yeah, good. I mean, but I kind of didn't really get into it till a few years ago. I could yeah. be like, eh. But now so I'm, well. there was a year where I was just like eating it all yeah. the time. A zucchini, for whatever reason, with mint really oh, plays yeah. Yeah. I like lemon. so beautifully. Like a, yeah. a squirt of lemon on the pizza. Sure. Yeah. I have to, you know, that's a Dan Richer thing. Yeah. Um, but that was my first uh, introduction to zucchini on pizza and... 
Anytime. Whatever Dan Richard does, do it or eat it or something. Try it. Yeah. <laughs> He's a good friend. Um, July, August. Okay. So that's when like things are just like all bets are off and things are getting really easy and they'll start being like cherry tomatoes and just, um, let's see, what else? And we're thinking just usually. pizza, but the fi- half of the 50 50 is ice yeah, cream. Those, Incredible. Those start being a lot of fresh oh my herbs. God, did we have yeah. amazing ice cream last night? What did night? you have, John? Uh, we had a toffee. Toffee, toffee. Co- oh mm. my God. And then they have Valrona chocolate. Like, but I want the fig leaf. Melted. Oh yeah, I know. I mean, it's like, you're going to make that this year. Wait, like, I'm yes. I'm waxing about this <laughs> I was Valrona like mesmerized coffee. when you were talking about it. I was like, oh my God, like, I have to try this. It Does it really yet. taste like fig? It kind of tastes like coconut and figs. It's okay. Like really, it's really, really good. Um, yeah, that's the other thing about the summer is all the fresh herbs come out for ice cream. And we start getting basil and things like that. I mean, we don't use fresh herbs in the winter because, yeah, we can't get them. Um, so, you know, our margarita has like dried oregano on it <laughs> from, from the farms. We that. just dry yeah. it, pick it. Yeah, I mean. That evokes a memory for people, me. People will, at the beginning when we first opened, people would cancel. Like if, we, if they were like, we'll get a margarita. We're like, we do, we have oregano. And they'd be like, no, never mind. I'll cancel it. Yeah, I was like, oh my God, it's going to be rough. But <laughs> they came around. But yeah, so that's like, you know, at that point, I think the ice cream starts to really show up too. And we start getting berries like, and that's the other thing about um, May, June is starting strawberries. This place so has start berries, the Pacific cream. Northwest, yeah. the, the berries, berries here, so we are depraved in the Northeast of the United States, sadly. The variety of like cane fruit that we have is crazy. Um, one of our farmers, I think he grows like 10 different like raspberry types, like Tayberry, Marionberry, Blackberry, raspberry, you know, like. That's yeah. the do difference. Those, do those find their way into your ice creams? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, what we do is we we have those at first when, they, when we first get them. And then we start doing other things like cantaloupe and things like that. Yeah. And we process tons and tons of blackberries, raspberries so that we have it ready to go. We freeze it. And then um, we process them and freeze them. And then all winter, we'll try to have the berry ice creams. Awesome. But we also have our forager gets huckleberries. So we also have huckleberry ice cream. There's like no real problem with that except maybe on a dark day in january when you run out of all that stuff but like september october is that this is this is a hard time i think actually um because you start things start waning but they're still around Mm -hmm. and so you're like you have to like weigh like when are we going to stop having you know cherry tomatoes and things like that um and for us it's hard just to ease the menu off of its reliance on summer produce Mm -hmm. And then it's hard also to just like not have kind of a Frankenstein menu that has like both. Um, so for me, I'm always like, this is the tricky part where we like kind of tip the scale and and change it. Um, but it's also kind of fun too, because you can have different, a mix of things. And, um, you know, we, the other thing about the winter is that we have a lot of great winter squash growers. Uh, my friend Lane Selman, who is in the Netflix episode, does a lot of work with like, She's Italian, and so she she tries to sort of infuse that like mentality of like saving things and growing things that do well, and you can hold in cellars for a long time. And um, and so she's been really helpful, like getting that stuff more popular. And she also works for Oregon State University, so she runs lots of like trials with farmers and gets grants to grow things like that and basically like improve the amount of them for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why another reason why Oregon and Washington are really lucky to have her because she just like actively infuses that stuff. And she's also starting to do it in Italy and take farmers over there and see how those chicory farmers grow things. And then everyone can come back here so and cool. like start it. So without that, I mean, it would be rough too. Mm-hmm. So 
every year, you know, it gets a little easier, but yeah, there, there are just these sort of tricks that you have to employ. Are you pickling work. or doing anything with like summer produce in order to like preserve and use in the winter months? We ferment um, hot chilies. Nice. They don't last up. Like we can't make that many. So usually they'll kind of go into like November and then be done. And I also dry a lot of um, sauce tomatoes like in the dehydrator. But um, I usually dry around 2,500 pounds. Yeah. it's wow. a lot. Yeah. I have a confession to make. And last night when I was in the restaurant, as we were on our way out, I was looking through your bookshelf by the front. <laughs> That always makes my sister nervous. I know. I didn't break. I didn't. I promise I didn't break anything no, or take anything. There's weird stuff in the books. Oh, okay. Oh, pictures recipes, and things like that and notes. recipes. Yeah. yeah. No, did I you didn't. touch anything, John? I did. Well, so. We found a couple books in there once. Hey. In the next. You know, like, <laughs> that's a weird stuff. Like, Dean's like, what was going on with that? <laughs> One of the beautiful moments of your Netflix special is when you pull out the Tartine cookbook with its tattered cover and broken binding and that book was up on the shelf last night and i oh, actually yeah, someone's probably gonna mm-hmm. take it now. No, yeah, I know, I you, know, you need well, to like put that <laughs> away i was gonna tell you like put a fake one up yeah. there or something but because i they saw can have it, it. <laughs> i was looking at all your books and you had a lot of our friends books you had chris bianco's book up there and anthony falco's book and uh you know all these great cookbooks but then i saw that one and i did pull it and i didn't pull it all the way off the yeah, shelf can, but i pulled pull it, it back and i was like oh here it is like that's so nice did you bring half here. of it with you fell apart <laughs> no i didn't i tucked <laughs> it, back. it back i tucked it back before it <laughs> fell apart but what's n- interesting is last week we were with uh liz prude from tartine and we had told her you know we were talking about you and that we were going to be visiting with you and she was so happy she to was so know touched. that you you know th- that her and chad's dough recipe was kind of the foundation for you know, you're getting into bread and pizza making. Um, oh, I love her too. Yeah. Because uh, that first cookbook, I've cooked every single thing out of there too. Or all desserts the cookies or, and cakes oh, and right. stuff. Oh, yeah. Anything Fantastic. that I can. Some yeah. I'm like, I can't make this. Yeah. It's too yeah. hard. But um, <laughs> So she's a big fan of yours. No, yes. I love them. I mean, uh, yeah. yeah, I love tartine. So. They do a great job. Um, what The question I was going to ask is, for you, pizza, have you... Have you traveled the world eating pizza? I mean, Portland, you don't have to travel outside of Portland to have great pizza. But for you, is there a pizza in your mind that you wanted to like get to? You know, I didn't do that initially because I, I like the show said, I sort of like stepped in and had to make it all work somehow. Because right. um, there was some at Lovey's, it didn't, it kind of cut this out in the show, but there was a chef who made the pizza for like the first year and a half. And I did the salads and the ice cream and worked on the floor. And then when he left, like, I just was like, I you just had to, like, was hop thrown in. in. I had to hop yeah. in. That, that, that part's missing in the show. But that was that's when it was really hard. And that's when I started to, like, look at tartine bread and try to figure out a different dough recipe. Because the one that the one that was the original Lovely's dough recipe was, you know, active dry yeast, all white flour, all, like, a, a lame, like, short ferment. Like, it just wasn't good. It was You're doing tough. a starter it now? Was, yeah, ours is sourdough now. Yeah. We have, like, high hydration. It's mm-hmm. 40% whole wheat. You know, it's like... So it's, I mean, to me now, this is the dough we want to have. And back then I just didn't really know better. I, we did have the seasonal produce and that was what was important to me, but it took me a minute to like click into the dough part. And, and, and that, that is like something that chefs kind of overlook a lot is, uh, our grains and wheat. And a lot of times they'll have a very like farm, you know, forward restaurant and then all the bread's white, (laughs) you know, it's like all like, who knows what, you know, um, gold medal flour or something. But, um, so as soon as that clicked in, um, well, I can't remember the train though. I was going somewhere with this. Uh, 
Uh, like, just, oh, if you travel to, oh, to do oh, the ultimate define, pizza. Like, emulate yeah. some sort so, of recipe. So for a while, I was landlocked at Lovely's, got the dough right, yeah. got the seasonal, like all the vegetables right, and really like took that and ran with it, all just incorporating all of it. And I did it more based on our old restaurant when we worked with Troy McClarty from, he was working at Chez Panisse, um, where I just knew how to kind of seasonally order and change a menu because he did that. And we would taste the whole menu like almost every day. And so we learned a lot and got a really good palate from doing that. So once I got that going and the pizza was good, um, people would come up and be like, oh, this is great. It's, 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 I'm from Italy or I'm from New Jersey and I don't like other pizza but this. And I would be like, I didn't know what they're talking about. I was always like, I don't know about those kind of pizzas. I've seen pictures and stuff and I didn't really know. So I did kind of make a point. There was one year where I, I went to Italy. I, I've traveled all over and eaten pizza all over Italy. And I also went to Chicago because it's another big one. Uh, went to New York, tried all those pizzas that everybody talks about. And, um, it was a real mix. I'd say the biggest surprise was Italy and in Northern Italy and Sicily, it's a lot different than Neapolitan pizza, which is the one that everyone kind of thinks of. And our pizza is like so different from Neapolitan pizza, but I think people go, they have an experience, they loved it. And then they come and they say, your pizzas, I haven't had good pizzas like this since Naples or something. You'd be like, okay, I get what you're saying is because you really liked it and you had a good experience, yeah. but the pizza is like super different. Yeah, it evoked a memory for yeah, them. Yeah. I'm a big fan of all types of pizza. So it wasn't like... Um, I was, I, I felt like inspired by all the ones that I tried and saw, but now I can like talk about it with people if they're like, oh, I'm from here. Oh, okay. Where? Okay. Yes. I've been to this place, this place, this place. Um, so it was a kind of a key educational piece. Are you always looking for like the next best ingredient to improve upon your dough? Like I'm making this up. You're using X flour and then you hear of this other flour and you're like, I want to try that. Is that, or are you like, this is the dough and I, I'm good. Well, we do have to change it a lot because the same way that we work with the farmer's market, we also work with Camas Country Mill and Eugene, and that's 40% of our flowers, okay. and they're all whole grain. So you're doing a blend? Yeah. Okay. So we have a blend of five flowers, actually. <laughs> and um, that just kind of happened because they'd be like, oh, we have spelt now. We have durum now. And I'd be like, all right, let's try it. And I'd throw it in and try. I mean, there was a time where I really changed the dough a lot. Um, and now I just... I, I stick with our blend, but sometimes they run out because the same thing, they grow a certain amount of this type and then... It's or if gone. they have a bad crop or something. Yeah, or, yeah. so a lot of things can happen. Um, so I'm flexible, to ch I'm open to changing it, but I'm also kind of just like, this blend works really well. It's a blend of spelt, hard red spring, hard white spring, and then two different central milling flowers, yes. um, mostly artisan baker's craft and also um, high mountain high gluten, which is a really common pizza flower. And we put it in really low, like 10%, just to give it like a little more crispy crunch and strength. But um, so, yeah, we've had that blend for a few years. It's been working pretty well. I get, let's talk a little bit about just how cheese make, has its places yeah. on your menus. Because um, last night I came in with uh, Lynn from... Point Reyes cheese, oh, yeah. who just happened to be in town. Jane told me that. I was like, oh, yeah, we had their name on the menu, which yeah. I was like, that's so funny because why do we have the name on the menu? It's the only I really call like out. it. I know, but yeah, I was like, great. that was kind of funny. I mean, it's always been on there. Yeah. Um, it's a standard. We have it all the time. So. But I, yeah, because I, we were at an event last night with her name's Lynn G Giacomini and from Point Reyes. And I said, Lynn, you know, I'm going to go get some pizza. Do you want to come? And she's like, yeah, I would love to come. And I said, you know, as a matter of fact, the place we're going, I was looking at the menu earlier. They mentioned your cheese point Reyes on the menu. She's like, are you serious? Oh, my God. Like, she was so thrilled. <laughs> and then we walked in there and we had the salad with her, you know, the point Reyes cheese, which was fantastic. 
Yeah, we um, use their toma sometimes too. And the mm-hmm. t- yeah, she makes a great toma. How does cheese? Because I guess the the pizzas at Lovelies, which are lovely, they're, they're not cheese heavy. Like nothing I had last night struck me as like covered in cheese. Where I was like, you know, pulling the slice the away, beautifully balanced. But how does cheese play into the menu at Lovelies? I mean, it's a it's a strong ingredient, you know. Um, all of our pies have at least three, sometimes four cheeses on there. So for the Cascadia Creamery, we're also using like some aged mozz, which is classic American pizza cheese. Yep. And we always use lots of um, Reggiano, Parmigiano. All our pies have that because we mix up the vegetables with like salt, olive oil, and Reggiano because it kind of coats them. And then when they're in, on the pizza, they it helps cook the veggies because we yeah. put them all on raw. And so, and then a topping, and usually that's point. That usually that's um, Cascadia Creamery. So it's just like there are. It's kind of it's all sandwiched there, and it's a nice trick to get everything to cook right. And it is tricky not to put too much cheese. It's true. Um, but yeah, I mean, we go through lots of cheese. Great, lots of cheese. You know. There was great. Uh, I think it was a fresh mozzarella on this tomato salad. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't tell if it was goat or mozzarella from your picture. It With, looked like a fresh yeah, mozzarella. Yeah. So, so we have a cheesemonger here, actually. If you have time, you should go over there. Cowbell. Yeah. It's, it's just, um, it's not far. It's across the river, but it's just on, you know, close to the river. Um, and those guys always have different things, too. Same thing. The owner goes to Italy all the time and sources cheese and then imports it. And so we just kind of listen to them on what they have. And we don't, that wasn't what was on there last night, but he'll import like things like buffalo mozzarella that he's really excited about. And like he sends out a newsletter and tries to get everybody on board and like order some, order some. Um, so I usually, we get all our cheese from them besides some of the cheese that we get from Provista. And um, so whatever they have and that one actually is from rhode island it's a fresh mozzarella foraged items so last night there was a pizza with lobster mushrooms on it which was amazing and you know i always think of that as a a mushroom that's really particular to the pacific northwest are there other foraged items through the year that you know you mentioned morels and chanterelles are there other wild things you mentioned miner's lettuce that are going into your pizzas or into the ice creams we have one forager um that runs this runs the company with his like wife and kid and stuff and he now he's crazy he drives all over the place and gets all of it we get all of our forage stuff from does he, he just show like, up at the restaurant with like muddy boots on and like uh, what i found yeah i mean i like it when he shows up usually it's someone else from the family delivering it but um it yeah i mean we get all of our mushrooms from him he gets the nettles he gets um he'll get anything he get wild ginger huckleberries um I mean, they mostly do mushrooms, but yeah, he does that little flour mix. That's like a sa- mm-hmm. he calls it a salad mix. But I mean, it's so beautiful for this kind of rugged guy <laughs> going yeah. and come back with this little bag of flowers, like things he picked out in the forest. You're always <laughs> just like, wow. But he loves it too, you know. And um, like every once in a while, I, he's not probably like on Instagram or anything, but I'll send him a photo and he'd be like, wow, amazing, so nice. you know? Because I'll be like, look, we put your flowers on the pizza, and and so and um. I told him about the show and he was, I, I don't think, he, I don't know if he'll watch it, but I was like, we're on a Netflix show, so we're going to need more mushrooms. You know? And he was just like, okay, I'll try, I'll try. But it's hard too. I mean, right now we haven't had rain, so there's, there's a shortage of mushrooms. So we don't have that pie tonight because couldn't get any more, but we'll is, see. Is there anything you will not put on a pizza? Are there any rules for you? That's like a good one. Anything that is not good on pizza, probably. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, there are some things. Have you had like, trial and error? Tri- yeah, there's a couple of things where we're like, no, like strawberries, for instance, is gross on a pizza. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that probably... 
There oh, we had are beautiful things. grapes on a pizza last night. Yeah, that's good. With the good. sausage. Oh. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, grapes work. Um, a lot of things will work. How do you treat the grapes? Because there's so, so much liquid. Well, these are a little smaller. Okay. I did see some that were a little bigger that came in. But yeah, once they're big, it gets a little tricky because they're also really hot. So you take a bite and you yeah. burn your whole mouth. And they're, yeah, too much liquid. But we just, that's a white pie. There's no sauce. So it's, it can afford like a little bit of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a big factor is the liquid factor. Yes. You can't be putting too much liquid on a pizza. Especially when all your pies are so veg forward. Yeah. That was like my thought when I was watching. I'm like, how is it crispy? Like, you know, how is she managing, you know, that because... But I figure, this is just my thinking while I'm watching the show, but there are, like sauce is not something that you I really are putting on. It seemed to me it was like veg and cheese and then beautiful, you know, garnish. Is that like, does the lack of sauce help? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and to me, sauce is so strong. Like if you yeah. put it on everything, that's all it's going to be. And I love a sauce pizza, but like we can't, we only have one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, because that's just like the whole ingredient is taking up the whole pizza on sauce. And I mean, we use really the best canned tomatoes. I think um, Bianco di Napoli tomatoes, they're so good. And really I love good. a marinara. Um, so, I mean, it's not, it's just that because it's just such a strong ingredient that we just have the one. But people will also shy away from pizzas that don't have red sauce, you know. Yeah. You'll be happy to know that you can get a side of anchovies as well, Andrea, oh. which were beautiful. And we put them on this potato pizza. Ooh, oh, it was so good. good. Yeah. Do you cook at home? <laughs> yeah. When I'm home. When you're home? <laughs> what are the top five pantry ingredients you must have at all times? Staples. Staples. I mean, I always have. have a giant box of olive oil. Okay. Spout. Like, mm-hmm. I can't mess around with anything else. That. Um, I always have a lot of beans. Okay. Um, and I always have a lot, tons of dry pasta. I usually order a lot of pasta from Italy because I love mm-hmm. those weird Italian brands with different grains. Yeah. Um, and I mean, weirdly enough, like the more I cook, I just start making really simple things. Like it's like, like last night I got home, I roasted a cabbage, cut it up, roasted it, and then put like tomatoes on it and rice and like just stirred it up with parm. And I was like, I'm just gonna call this like cabbage smash. And I was like, <laughs> this is so good. Like yeah. I was also yeah. like, it's just, like, it's so delicious. So mm. I try to have vegetables, you know, in the fridge and just from Lovey's, I can, if there's a case of cabbage, take one, one of something home. So, but um, let's see other pantry stables, flour. I have a little flour mill. So I, I like to have, I used to make my son like fresh milled flowers, fresh milled pancakes every day and really good maple syrup. Um, one of our farmers is from Vermont, and he goes and taps it, and so things like that. Pretty simple, yeah. A lot I of butter, try those pancakes. They're really good. Yeah, definitely try. Definitely get on that. Well, this yeah. has been, been amazing. So fantastic. We're so happy you came in today. Lovely's fifty fifty in Portland, Oregon. If you're here, you must visit. As I mentioned earlier, Chef's Table Pizza episode with Sarah. It's so great. Watch it. And if you're on Instagram at Sarah Minnick, great to follow you there too, because you get to see all the goodies that you're finding at the farmer's market and what's being forged. So thank you again for thank coming you. in. Thanks, We're guys. really honored. Really we know you're busy. Thanks. Thanks again. for having me. Yeah. <laughs> Next up in the studio is John Schumann from Cascadia Creamery. He's going to talk to us about his amazing Sleeping Beauty cheese. All right, we are in Portland, Oregon at the Pervista 
Foods Expo Expo in their warehouse. And we are very lucky today to be with John Schumann of Cascadia Creamery. Yeah. Him and his wife, Marcy, are the founders. Um, welcome. This is great. Good to be here. A real Oregon cheesemaker, Andrea. Yeah. Well, you know, Sarah Minnick wanted to talk about, um, in particular, your cheese, Sleeping Beauty. Mm -hmm. uh, but we would love to learn a little bit about the history and kind of how Cascadia Creamery came to be. Right. Uh, gosh, you're, you're asking like long questions here. Yeah. How much time do we got? <laughs> this, is like, this is like 60 minutes, except it's only 15 minutes. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, Hard-hitting cheese questions. Question, yeah. So we'll we'll go like in a nutshell. Um, I always had a passion for raw food, um, particularly raw dairy. I was you know borderline lactose intolerant. So the answer to lactose intolerance is raw you know raw product because uh, the enzyme that you need to digest dairy is destroyed by pasteurization, but uh, present in uh, raw milk. So I couldn't find a good raw cheese that I liked that was organic, very picky eater. I like only like, you know, okay. really good stuff. So I started making cheese myself. Uh, we live in Trout Lake, Washington, which is a dairy. Uh, there's more cows than people. So all, all the production is all organic. Uh, so this idyllic uh, mountain valley with organic cows in it. So I started working for... Uh, I started interning for one of the dairies in exchange for milk, started making cheese with the milk I was trading. Uh, this caught on pretty quickly locally, and I was trading my cheese for firewood and and whatever it was, meat, yeah. um, other people who were making local stuff. So it, it developed very quickly um, where everybody else wanted to buy it, not just me eating my own cheese. We got licensed to make cheese so we could do farmer's markets. Um, uh, quickly got found by, actually our first distributor was uh, Provista, which is Chef's Warehouse, an arm of Chef's Warehouse. Uh, they brought us on um, and uh, quickly just ramped this up, started selling around the country. Um, and, awesome. You know, How many different cheeses do you make? Uh, we have four different uh, mainstay cheeses. Uh, our Sleeping Beauty is our are definitely our flagship cheese, and we have a washed rind cheese, uh, Sawtooth, a, a a bloomy rind kind of English territorial cheese called Cloudcap, and a blue cheese called Glacier Blue. And these are all cow's milk cheeses. Yes. Cool. Can, can you describe the flavor profile of Sleeping Beauty? So Sleeping Beauty, uh, you get like. Okay, when, when someone asks, like, you know, what kind of cheese is it, uh, in, the, in the American world, you have a very, like, uh, you know, defined boxes. I have a cheddar cheese. I have a Swiss cheese. Uh, right. Those, those types of things. So the, you know, when you get into the cheese world, you get a little bit more esoteric. So Sleeping Beauty is kind of reminiscent or modeled after, like, a, what would be an English countryside cheese or a tome-style cheese. Our milk is uh, very rich milk. Our butter fat is is way above average. Um, you know, it's uh, grass fed cows um, on whatever magical grass they're eating. It makes a lot of butter fat. So our cheeses are very rich and buttery. So Sleeping Beauty has a nice tang to it. It's got like a good like kind of acidic, uh, you know, back of the mouth profile, sure. which makes your mouth, you know, water. Yeah. Um, and it's also got like a really nice, rich, buttery, uh, buttery undertone. Like creaminess to it. Yeah. 
So it's really good for melting? It's the best melting cheese. I'm, you know, when when uh, I meet people and talk about cheese, the impression is, oh, this guy's like a cheese snob. And what's like, you know what? I like my I like myself a good grilled cheese sandwich or Sleeping Beauty melted all over something. Mm-hmm. That's just my, my happy place. Um, so... I like to melt Sleeping Beauty. It's my it's my cooking cheese. It's on the top of everything that's hot in my house. Just melt it all over the place. So it it, it brings out this nice buttery, you know, you know. I just can't stop talking. <laughs> and if you give Andrea a piece, she'll probably make nachos in her hotel room tonight. Yeah. Why Sleeping Beauty? So uh, our area has a lot of Native American history, and they're. Um, I can't show you the picture because I didn't bring like a little cue card to the mm. picture. So there's a, a Native American legend about um, a, uh, a Native American princess, the two main mountains in our area, um, Mount Hood and Mount Adams, did battle over this princess. One, uh, one mountain won, Mount Adams won. The princess was secretly in love with Mount Hood and uh, went into an eternal sleep because um, she was grieving because she was now betrothed to, you know, the other mountain mm. and not her true love. So there's this little mountain range feature, which when you look at it from Trout Lake, looks, um, you know, one of those cool, like, uh, visual things. It's like a, a silhouette of a face of someone, you know, lying down uh, kind of with their, you know, with their arms, you know, arms over like in eternal sleep. So you look nice. up and it's like that, look, it's a lady sleeping, lying down in the mountain range. Um, so that's where we got the name from. All I our cheeses it. are kind of named out that's of so cool. some like local geographic or, or you know, mm. some kind of tie in to, to our region. Now, another fascinating, first of all, I screwed up earlier. You're Washington based. Yes. I thought you were in Oregon because you are very close. I guess the border it's is the border. I know. Yeah. I don't know. Even know where I am right now. Um, Portland, Oregon. Yeah. Portland, Oregon. And you're in Washington. Okay. Yes. It's, a, it's like north of us. You're a Washington no, no, cheesemaker. You're well, a Washington cheesemaker. No, north, north of us. us. Yeah. But barely. I don't like, know where I am, actually. Yeah. I think that's, I think I'm tired. So <laughs> I understand that you have these like ancient volcanic caves. Talk mm-hmm. to us about like, that. Like naturally occur in that area? Yes. Tell so, us. So Mount Adams, the winner of the battle, um, uh, is you know a volcanic peak. So the whole valley is kind of based on these lava flows. And anytime you have lava flows, you have the lava tube caves that form, um, you know, out of that volcanic activity. Dormant vo- volcanoes. These yeah. are no longer active. I hope not. Because Mount St. Helens <laughs> isn't that far away, is it? Or is that uh, no? It's that... it's right around the corner. Okay. It's, it's okay. very close. Um, you know, when Mount St. Helens blew, we had a foot of ash. Um, wow. in the backyard. Okay. Um, so, you know, Mount Adams is happily sleeping. Okay. Like uh, Sleeping Beauty. Like okay. Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. Um, so the area is just laced like Swiss cheese of, you know, of lava tubes kind of crisscrossing and, and... They're like tunnels or caves. Yeah. And this is yeah. where you're aging the cheese. Correct. Yeah. And how large is the, is your cave? So the cave itself that's kind is, of a personal question, yeah. isn't it? I was Andrew? waiting. I was waiting. That's that's you know, is that appropriate to be asking a cheesemaker? You know, John, know. gotta get your mind out Let, of the gutter. Think, what's you, the size of your cave? What's yeah. the size of your cave, John? It's not the size of the cave, Andrew. It's the quality John of the Schumer, dairy. Not John right. Magazine. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Yikes. We could go sideways. Yes. <laughs> Let's keep it professional, Andrea. <laughs> 
So uh, the the cave itself, we actually haven't been to the end of the cave. It's a, an extensive cave cave network uh, where we age our our cheese. We've finished out a certain portion of the of the cave because FDA wouldn't really be super cool with like, yeah, we got bats and we got yeah. you know all kinds of stuff in there. So we've finished out um, a portion, and it's you know it's a it's not a huge space, but um, you know thirty by thirty kind of is it chamber. temperature controlled? Is there electricity? How nope. does it work? It's all natural. So in one side of our our finished thing, there's basically like a you know a screened you know, a screened door on one side and the air moves through. So there's there's different types of caves. There's a hole in the ground, which is, you know, you can call it a cave, but it's a hole in the ground. And then you have um, a living cave system. So it actually, this cave has its own airflow. You know, it's it's a breathing cave. Because you said like, you don't know where it right. ends. There's, there's, some end of it somewhere, but we don't know where that is. That's crazy. Haven't been able to get that far mm-hmm. far into it. So there's opportunity for expansion. Uh, you know, potentially, but you know, uh, you know, then we'd have to finish out more cave. Okay. And, you know, Did you know there were different types of caves? Yeah. The the dig a hole kind and the natural cave. Right. The hole so, in the ground. Andrew always says that she was raised by a pack of wolves in a cave. So a I'm cave. trying to figure out what, yeah, kind, what of kind of cave, cave it was. were the wolves. The natural you know. cave. They were natural. Okay. It was natural. Yeah. Got it. So like Roqueford, the Roqueford caves are a living cave system. It actually has an airflow because um, cheese needs. In the south of France. Yeah. Got it. Uh, cheese needs air exchange. You can't just, you know, put it in a static airspace. Those molds and, and all the stuff that grows on a cheese rind mm-hmm. needs air turnover and, it's, and certain like, you know. Uh, certain conditions. Does it maintain a, a consistent temperature? Yep. Um, it stays on average like 54 degrees. Um, wintertime, you know, it creeps a little colder. Summertime, it creeps a little warmer. Just perfect conditions. It's perfect natural conditions. Yeah. Even when the weather, like I know in the in the Pacific Northwest in the last, you know, few weeks, you've been seeing like record breaking temperatures. Yeah. Is that, is the cave like just, just, I'm good? It's good. Yeah. All right. You go down there to stay cool? Yeah. When it's hot out. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Everyone's in the office, like, sweating away and... Natural chilling. air conditioning. You're just chilling in your cave? Yeah, I go down like, oh, I think the cheese needs a little tending. Maybe Do you ever call it your man, man cave? cave? Is it a man cave? John, that was my joke. Sorry, Andrea. <laughs> Everyone, you know, it's more like the... Uh, um, you know, like the supervillain spy thing. Oh, it's like the underground like the lair. Cave, like my of. underground lair with a volcano type of deal. Did you... you know? open the cheese production because the caves were there or did you find that there are these caves there and they're great for aging your cheeses um i was making cheese before but there was certainly a fascination because the area that we're in um in the homesteading days used all these caves for different things like there's a there's a whole uh, there's a whole bunch of che- caves. One's like called Cheese Cave. One's called Potato Cave. One called Butter Cave. There's a Christmas Tree Cave because they used to cut Christmas trees and store it in the cave. Oh. So all these caves had names based on what products the cave was appropriate for, the right airflow or the right temperature. Yeah. There's Ice Cave. So, so that's a colder one. Yeah. Okay. So I was just fascinated. This is so cool. Like, wow, you like you can make a product. It's 
you know, pre-electricity and you can like pick your cave, you know, go hand pick a cave like, oh, I think I like this one for butter. This is a good potato cave. So there's the Sleeping Beauty. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the other cheeses you're making that you mentioned earlier? The two blues? Uh, Just one blue. Oh, one blue. So Glacier Blue. Glacier Blue. Uh, It's the kind of concept or, you know, I don't like blue cheese. Everyone said, you got to make a blue cheese. You're a cheese maker. All right. So I played around with blue cheese recipes until I found a blue cheese that I liked to eat because I'm not going to make something I don't like. I'm one of those people. Um, So it's a mild, meaty, it's like cheese's answer to bacon sort of blue, not like a pungent, you know, burn your nose hairs sort of blue. I don't want to be harshing on blue because, you know, there's a lot of good blue cheeses out there, but I like, I like salty, meaty things, you know, charcuterie. So this blue cheese is, is sort of like right in that pocket of like, you know, meaty, bacony, you know, type of essence. Do you like blue cheese, Andrea? I do not. You don't? No. You're going to have oh. to try Glacier Blue. I could, I've turned I many blame a, my penicillin you know, allergy. Do you like but bacon? But I don't think that that's a thing. Do you like bacon? I, oh, come on. Maybe you're what, in. what am I, a monster? Maybe maybe, maybe we got a right, cheese well, for you. I, I, yeah. I will try it Okay. for John. Bacon, the gateway meat. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then there's Sawtooth, which is a washed rind cheese. Uh, we're a raw creamery, so we have to age 60 days, which makes you know any of those types of higher moisture, uh, washed rinds, bloomy rind cheeses more challenging because typically, you know, in the European model, those would be like a you know a three four week type cheese, and then they yep. go downhill. So, and again, you know, just like blue cheese, I was never a fan of something really pungent and socky and. And things like that. I like that savory, you know, kind of something you want to curl up, you know, next to a fire with sort of cheese. So Sawtooth is is another version of that where it's um, it's got a lot of rich, buttery, savory flavors to it. Um, and it's funky, but it's not – it's a very approachable cheese versus, you know, a, like a Limburger is, is up here with a, you know, kind of getting hit by a – uh, like a farmer's sock or something like that. Mm. What do you use to wash the rind on the sawtooth? Uh, just a salt brine. Okay. So just, you know, keep it, keep it moist, keep it clean. Um, nice. The essence of a wash rind cheese is, is to just keep the rind free of, of uh, you know, the molds and, and favoring the, um, the more yeast-style, Bellinian-style organisms. So that doesn't impart flavor when someone has a beer-washed rind cheese or a mark or a, some kind of alcohol-washed rind? So give us the truth, John, the truth. When I, when we wash something with, you know, cause I, I play with that. It's sure. fun to, fun to do different things. Um, if you have something really strong, it can impart in the rind of, you know, kind of an essence. But for the most part, when I'm using something like that, I'm stealing the organisms like I'll wash with a cider and I'm getting those yeasts and, you know, all. I'll go for a, a natural bottle conditioned cider or beer because really what you're doing is you're giving some biology to the cheese. But it's not permeating the oh, cheese. Very little. Okay. I mean, you might be able to taste it in the rind, but what you're tasting more is is the biology that's happening by adding that, you know, medium to it. This is this is my like honest truth. Like hopefully no one's you know No one's behind it. <laughs> <Yeah, no. laughs> Makes sense. Oh. And what's the la- the other cheese that you're making? Uh, the cloud cap, which is, um, it's a bloomy rind cheese, but not in the way that like a brie 
Um, you're not getting a soft cheese. It's a it's in the English territorial sort of family of cheese, like a Wensleydale or or Carafilly, Cheshire sure. type cheeses. It's got a real firm, almost crumbly core, which is like citrusy and really a very bright um, a bright flavor. But the outside is that brie sort of, you know, rind. So it has a breakdown, you know, a quarter inch breakdown around the rind, which is like, you know, kind of soft and, um, you know, soft and gooey. Mm -hmm. Very dynamic cheese. Um, you get a lot of good like milky. You taste the milk. You taste the pasture on that cheese. It's very representative of the ingredient. Um, Speaking of gooey, I did see a spread. Yes, we do a fondue, um, you know, a fondue spread. Um, well, how, how is that made? So primarily Sleeping Beauty, but you know, it's what do you do with, you know, if you're cutting for an event like this and you have, you know, extra ends and pieces and stuff like that, you know, I'm not going to mm. throw it away. And I can eat a lot of cheese, but there's a certain limit when you're sure. you know, producing. I can't eat all of the extra cheese. So we, we take all our extras and, um, you know, basically make a fondue, an alcohol-less fondue. I think technically uh, you could call it a fonduta, but I don't even know what that means exactly. Someone just threw that out there. Um, Sounds so good. it's a it's a, a spreadable spreadable cheese comes into like a tub. You know, you can like uh, ditch your cream cheese, put it on your bagel in the morning. You're making mac and cheese at night. You just like spoon that into it instead of the you know craft powdery stuff. Um, you can eat it with a spoon when you're sitting on the couch because you ran out of Ben and Jerry's. Um, uh, I'm salivating over here. Yes. I don't know about you, John. Just a fondue I actually am too. So. A fonduta is a dish from Northern Italy that is typically served as an appetizer, which is basically a plate of melted cheese, cheese fondue. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, it's eaten like fondue, but it's mm -hmm. just on, served on a plate. Um, where do you source your milk? So it's, it's one dairy. Um, I, I mentioned before, I kind of crafted an internship so I could get, you know, so I could earn milk. Uh, so it's one family dairy. They're, they're on their fifth generation now. They homesteaded the area in, you know, 1880, something like that. Um, they were one of the first uh, organic, certified organic dairies in, you know, in the Pacific Northwest. They were very early into that um, into that movement, um, primarily a Jersey herd. But since I started making cheese with them, we've, you know, we work very closely. I mean, it's, it's kind of like a, you know, a conversation versus just a supplier, uh, vendor kind of, kind of deal. I mean, so many of the best cheeses in America and the world are now coming from the Pacific Northwest. Uh, to your point, you've got these great lush, Mm -hmm. fields of grass here for the cows to graze on. And, um, you know, I, I can think of a lot of great cheesemakers in Oregon and Washington. So, but for people who are not Provista customers, you know, they're, they're, they're home cooks they're they're, I'm going to use the word foodies. Mm -hmm. Where can they purchase your cheeses, uh, in the retail market? Right. So in the Pacific Northwest, Almost all the kind of natural food stores, Whole Foods, New Seasons, Zupans, um, uh, up in Seattle, Town and Country, uh, uh, PCC, anything, anything like that, and of course all the the smaller cheese shops are, you know, most everybody has us in the case somewhere. Awesome, beautiful. Well, thanks so much, 
uh, John Schumann from Cascadia Creamery. This has been just fantastic. Are people, if if you want to visit the Creamery, or do you take guests in Trout Lake, uh, we Washington? Don't, we don't do any tours. Okay, let's strike like that. that. Yeah. But could, could, John, could John and I come? Yeah. All right. The insiders can come. Okay. Love it. Thanks so much. Thanks, it's John. It's been a real pleasure yeah, to talk fun. to you today. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Ingredient Insiders. You can watch this episode on YouTube and see more behind-the-scenes content by following us. Find us on Instagram by searching at Ingredient Insiders. <laughs>